Hi, I'm Dave Kittredge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and this is The Outcast, presented by Outfest, where we have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. And my guest today is the prolific and award-winning documentary filmmaker whose works include Spine Tingler, The William Castle Story, Wrangler, Anatomy of an Icon, Tab Hunter, Confidential, The Fabulous Alan Carr, Vito, and my personal favorite, I Am Divine, which just came back to Netflix recently. And in 2015, he received the Frameline Award from the Frameline Film Festival for having made a major contribution to LGBT representation in film. And I'm also very fortunate to call him my good friend of many years, Mr. Jeffrey Schwarz. Welcome to the Outcast, Jeffrey. What an intro. You know how we met, David Kittredge? <laughs> Do you remember how we met? I think it was through friends. I don't exactly remember. How did we meet? I came to see a, a test screening of your film, Pornography, a Thriller. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was clearly such a, a love letter to the things that inspired you as a filmmaker and the movies that you love. So I, I think we're, we're always constantly going back to the well of the things that we love. And the things that have obsessed us for our entire lives are what carries us through. I mean, I really believe that. So many of the things that I've worked on are... Uh, or things that I, I just, the seed was planted many years ago, who knows why. And at a certain point, they, they're, they're just percolating in the back of your brain. And it's like time to make the movie about it. That was one thing I was going to ask you. What really inspires you to make a movie? When, when does the decision actually happen? I don't think there's like a light bulb moment. It's just, um, I felt like with Divine, for example, I wanted the world to appreciate Divine as much as, as I did. And I started to feel like as time was going on, less and less people even knew who this person was or knew what kind of a contribution this person made or knew how this person changed our world. And I just wanted to create an experience where an audience could sit there for 90 minutes and just feel this exuberance and this joy and this, and this sadness ultimately at losing this person and the appreciation of the sacrifices that this person made and all the shit that this person had to go through to be who they were. So I don't know, I feel like I wanted to make a movie for people who didn't think they had anything in common with someone like Divine. So I am very appreciative that the LGBT audience has embraced my movies, but I also love it when I go to a non-LGBT festival and people are completely cold to the subject at first. And then they come out at the end of it like having this appreciation for this queen that they'd never heard of. Like, I think anybody who has a dream can identify with a lot of the subjects of the films that I've made, because they're all dreamers, and they all made a mark on the world in a way that they maybe didn't expect to. Like, I don't think Jack Wrangler came into his career thinking that he was even going to be in porn necessarily, or that he was going to change the industry, or we would still be talking about him today. And even when I approached Jack Wrangler to make the movie, he was very resistant at first. He didn't think anybody would care. And it took me a few years for him actually to get on board to say yes, because he didn't want to be remembered as Jack Wrangler, former porn star, even though, as he predicted in his obituaries, it all they all said Jack Wrangler, former porn star. <laughs> but I think the genius of your documentary on him is show you, you basically put it in context. You say yes, he did this porn, and 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 it was you know iconic and important in that realm. But there was also a whole other side to him, and you show that really, really well. Well, I look at the movies as a way to tell the story of an individual, but through the story of the one individual, you can tell a social history. So with Vito, this incredible life, he was such a force. But through his story, you could really tell the story of the LGBT movement from the years right prior to Stonewall, through Stonewall, through ACT UP, and it's 
basically the, f- the first half of the modern LGBT movement through his eyes. And he was a sort of this zealot figure who was knew everybody and was part of everything and helped us understand who we were as a community, helped us understand how we were depicted in media and changed that image. He was one of the people who started GLAAD. He was one of the people who founded ACT UP. He was this amazing guy that I don't think a lot of people had necessarily heard of of our generation. I think people coming of age in the 70s would know his name, you know, in our community. But again, as I was saying with, with Divine, you know, you ask your average LGBT person on the street who was Vito Russo, before I made the film, very few people would have heard of him. They might have heard of The Cellular Closet, the book that he wrote and the film that was made out of it. But they didn't know his story and they didn't know the impact. And now, after the film, I'm really gratified to see that his name is recognized a lot more. So that's really, that's the reason. If you ask me what the reason is, I just, I just want to celebrate these people and I want to make sure that they're not forgotten. But, you know, LGBT rights and, and the way that we're depicted is also deeply embedded in every one of your movies. You know, going back to when you were starting out in the industry, one of your first gigs, you worked on The Cellulite Closet, the, the now kind of iconic documentary by Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman. What was that like working on that? Were you just like a PA kind of like running around and stuff? I was in film school at SUNY Purchase. And again, it all goes back to movies. So when I was coming out toward the tail at the tail end of college... I was just reading everything I could get my hands on. There was this one section in the library. I forget the Dewey Decimal number, but it'll come to me, maybe 790. I don't know what it was, but it was like one shelf in the library that we would we all had this experience, I think. Of a I, certain I age, did as well. I'm nodding profusely right now. One of the books on the shelf was The Cellular Closet by Vito Russo. And Vito had just passed away when I was coming out. I knew who he was. And um, I read that book. And that's a book that, for the first time, looked at how we're depicted in, in movies. And, you know, Vito was of the generation who was just raised on movies. You know, you go to the movies. That was it. You, the movies were towering. They were in these palaces. The movie stars were bigger than life. And Vito was this movie-crazy kid who would go to the movies and never see himself. And if, he, if on the rare occasion he, you would see a gay person, it was always coded in some way. Either they were... A, frivolous sissy character, you know, the hotel clerk or the valet or the butler, or they were more sinister. They were the villain in a Hitchcock movie or something like that, or they would kill themselves at the end of the movie. And there was never anything sort of empowering about that. There was never just a regular normal person, you know, as a gay person, it was just always something alien or psychotic. And Vito picked up on that. He wasn't the only one to pick up on that, but no one had ever written about it. So he decided it was going to be his mission to see, track down every single movie ever made that featured a gay character, LGBT character, whether it was one scene or as, or as um, the lead of the movie, like something like Victim, and write the book. It took him years and years to do it. So the book came out and it was a groundbreaking book. And by the time I read it, it had already been out for about 10 years. And I read the book and it just blew my mind. It introduced me to so many movies I'd never heard of before and helped me to look at movies I thought I knew in a new way. So I read in The Advocate uh, that Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman were adapting a film out of the, the book. And I just knew I had to work on that somehow. So I was leaving college and I called their office and I said, I, I just need to come here. I'll sweep the floors. I'll do whatever you need me to do. And they did. And they invited me to come in and intern on it. So I moved to San Francisco and in 93. And they were still... They hadn't gotten the full financing for it. They had just done a direct mail campaign. So this was like oh, early wow. Kickstarter. They did a direct mail campaign. Kickstarter without the computer. Yeah, it was literally getting mailing lists 
I think it was Sean Strube, who's a very prominent um, HIV AIDS activist and still very much a force with us today. He was a direct mail guy and he had the mailing lists. And so they had a letter written from Lily Tomlin talking about her friendship with Vito. And Vito had just passed away. So he was very fresh in people's minds and he was such a beloved figure in the community. So they were trying to raise funds within the community, just the same way we do today on Kickstarter, but it was a lot harder then. So they had this letter and- A lot more post office. A lot more post office. So when I got there, they had just done that and checks were starting to come in. And so we would open up the letter and there would be a check from Neil Diamond. (laughs) There'd be a check (laughs) from Hugh Hefner and a million other people who were just regular people. And they put a, a pitch reel together and I got to see that whole process and what that was like. When I got there, they had a wall of videotapes of um, dubs of all these queer movies and they were still working tape to tape it wasn't even digital digitized so they they put the scissor reel together and they went to pitch it to Sheila Nevins at HBO and she said yes in the room and God bless then they her. came back from New York and we were all so happy so financing came in so then I got officially hired as an apprentice editor and it was amazing I got to see from the ground up how a movie was made and Rob had made The Times of Harvey Milk a few years prior, which had been another like formative movie for me. Um, I, still my favorite documentary of all it, time. It won an Oscar, didn't it? The Oscar was there in the office. I got to hold the Oscar. Oh they won God. two Oscars. <laughs> Actually, Rob made Common Threads with Jeffrey Friedman, and they won the Oscar yes. a few years later. Yeah. So there were two Oscars in the office. I got to hold my first Oscar. <laughs> anyway, long story short, they uh, over the next couple of years, I got to witness, literally witness, a movie being made by Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman, who... I'm still very close with and love their work. And their editor was a guy named Arnie Glassman, who became a very close friend and a mentor to me. And I, everything I learned or so much I learned about editing and storytelling was from him. I mean, I still use methods that he taught me about how you structure a movie, how you work with interviews and clips. And that's a genre that I'm still very attracted to. Well, did you consider yourself a documentary filmmaker before you had this experience or were you just more kind of like open and, and kind of a general filmmaker or wanted to make horror movies or something like well, that? Well, when I first went to film school, I thought I wanted to make horror movies and uh, scripted films. And then somewhere along the way, I just totally lost interest in that. I mean, I still love movies and still, and I think a lot of the movies that inspire me aren't necessarily even documentaries. They're just films. I mean, I don't really see the difference between a doc and a feature film. It's just telling a great story. So I pivoted in um, film school to documentary, and my first documentary was about Al Lewis. Oh, it's so good. Uh, Is this up on YouTube? Because everybody needs to see this. This is such a wonderful, sweet documentary. Yeah, it's on YouTube. Um, Everybody look this up, please. It's called Al Lewis in the Flesh, and Al Lewis played the grandpa on the Munsters TV show. And when I was in school, he had a restaurant in, in Greenwich Village, on Bleecker Street called Grandpa's. And you'd go there to have an Italian meal, but the real reason people went there is because he would be there all the time. He would be, he was like the greeter and he would greet people as they came into the restaurant and people from all over the world would go because they get, would get to meet Grandpa and like tour buses would pull up in front of the restaurant and then he'd get on the tour bus and everyone would go insane, like a busload of Japanese tourists would go insane. And I was like, this just needs to be captured. This has to be captured. So that that was like, for me, that was the bug. I mean, I just, I had so much joy just being there in the middle of all this insanity and this chaos. And he was like a real curmudgeon. You know, he, he, he was a, a showman, but also kind of a crabby old guy, but so loving and beloved. And I made this movie and that was like my calling card when I moved to 
to LA. It was like, this is my, my finished movie. Do you ever reshoot interviews or shoot a temp interview and then go back and shoot the real interview later with nicer lighting and cameras and stuff? Rob and Jeffrey did that a lot. They would do pre-interviews and they would record them in a rough way on video, VHS, and uh, and then they would decide whether they wanted to interview the person later based on the pre-interview. Did, did they find a difference in kind of results? I think, but most people like, when you go back to do them again later, they forgot everything they said and it's like doing it for the first time. <laughs> but But you don't do that. I don't do that because I might as well, I just figure just shoot it, you know, and shoot it well once and then you, you can use it or not use it. I, there's a lot of people who won't shoot an interview unless they're 100% positive they want to use it, but I'd rather overshoot and then get some surprises, even though I'm, not, I'm on the fence about, you know, is this person really going to belong in the movie? But you never know. I might get, I might get that one soundbite that I need. So I might overdo it. I probably interview too many people, but. Well, but that's the question with documentary filmmakers. It's like, what's your style and what's your, you know, kind of workflow. So what you're saying is you just record a lot of people. If I have the resource to do it, I, I like to fill the day, you know? So there's some people that are going to go for two, three hours and you know that, but then there's some people like, I think I just need this person to say one thing, but I'll interview them for an hour anyway. Because you never know. A lot of your movies, I mean, basically your movies can be kind of distilled into one of two large groups, which is, you know, LGBT kind of icons and 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 people we kind of want to like learn more about with regard to, you know, LGBT issues and cinema and especially cult cinema. These are things that I've been obsessed with in one way or another since I was really young. And they've been percolating in my brain for decades until someday... I just had the realization that it needs to be a movie, right? So I can point to um, my college experience as a time where a lot of these obsessions started to take root, right? So that's when I first discovered John Waters and Divine. And then a little later, uh, coming out and going to used bookstores and pulling a lot of ephemera from the past and discovering Jack Wrangler's autobiography uh, on a shelf of used books, uh, for a dollar a book outside of Finocchio's in San Francisco. And I pulled Jack Wrangler's autobiography and it was autographed to Jeffrey, but it wasn't to me, it was some other Jeffrey. Oh my God. And then realizing that some of these subjects all had the same birthday, like Jack Wrangler, Tab Hunter, and Vito Russo were all born on July 11th. So when you ask, you know, where, what is your logic about choosing the subjects? I feel like they kind of choose me. And in a way the movies are already made some in some alternate universe, and I'm just the vessel to, you know, push them into existence. Well, there's kind of a purity to that kind of a, a philosophy. You're kind of like chalking it up to kind of a Jungian synchronicity. Ooh, we're going to go fancy. Jungian <laughs> synchronicity. Is it too early in the morning? You know, it could be too early know. in the morning to be fancy. I do believe, I mean, I'm sure you're the same way. These things that are imprinted in our brains from a really young age that put us on a path, you know, like, well, why was I attracted to Count Dracula? Why, why when I was a little kid and didn't even know what this image is, I think it probably started with the Count from Sesame Street. Like, why was I attracted to that image? which led me to Bela Lugosi, which led me to all the other universal monsters, which sort of just opened up this portal into this whole world that I've been sort of obsessed with ever since, you know? So outsiders and weirdos and freaks and monsters. And then there's a small step from being a sort of a monster kid to being a closeted gay kid. I mean, so many people have the same experience. It's been talked about so much, the link between um, being a horror fanatic and being attracted to those kinds of images and being gay. Um, 
I don't know. They're 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 very connected for me. Yeah, there's a, there's a very small road between horror and queerness in a lot of ways. I mean, they're they're both in a lot of ways outsiders um, kind of looking in. And when you look at the the people that you've done documentaries about, they're all kind of icons and iconoclasts. But are, are there any other similarities between them? And I'm you know I'm even including you know William Castle in this. You know, but it's like you know William Castle, Alan Carr, they were kind of showmen, divine as well. Tab Hunter, very different. Vito Russo, very different. Jack Wrangler, you know, reasonably different. I mean, I guess you could say he's something of a showman. But, you know, in the documentary that you made, Wrangler, Anatomy of an Icon, he, he seems a, a bit introverted, if anything. Well, I think the thing that connects those, I think Vito is a little bit of an exception. He stands apart. But uh, William Castle, which is the first documentary feature doc that I made, William Castle was a horror film director in the 1950s. Um, Jack Wrangler was the second film. He was a, a, a gay porn star and also a straight porn star. That's another story. At Divine and uh, Tab Hunter and Alan Carr. I mean, they were all people who struggled with some kind of insecurities or feeling like they were lesser than, but that when, once they put on this character, once they created this persona for themselves, uh, they were able to move forward in the world in a more confident way and almost created a character. So the, those films are almost sort of like superhero origin stories in a way, you know, that they, Jack Wrangler is a character. William Castle is a character. Tab Hunter is a character. Alan Carr is a character. Divine certainly is a character. And if you look at the contrast between them in their private lives and their more quiet moments, they're radically different. I mean, Jack Wrangler was a skinny sissy kid who grew up in Hollywood. He wanted to be an actor. And he was about as far as you can get from that macho man image that he created. I mean, that was a deliberate construction. Uh, same with Divine. For Ted and Tab Hunter's case, that was created for him by Hollywood. Hollywood put that on him. Uh, and so at some point, the, the real person and the persona kind of merge and they, the, the persona becomes the reality. That's always been really fascinating to me. Why is that? I, that's, that's probably a question for a therapist. I don't know. But I think a lot of us <laughs> weren't able to live our true selves for a long time. And, you know, I came of age in the 80s and the 90s, and I struggled with sort of putting forward the image that I thought people wanted to see until I came out and, you know, was able to live my, my true self. So in the subjects of these films that we're talking about, they weren't able to be them, their true selves until they put on a mask which I found very interesting. Well, it's interesting also because the, the, you look at your subjects and, and Tab Hunter actually seems to like be an exception in this regard because yeah, he had this persona made for him and yeah, he was a movie star, but he like in the portrait that you put forth, you know, it almost seems like he didn't even want it. Well, Tab is sort of a unlikely movie star. He was born with these incredible good looks and the world responded to that. You know, even when he was in, he talks about this in the film, before he was quote unquote Tab Hunter, when he was just going to school and trying to just live his life, uh, girls would chase him down the hall. He had to run into a classroom and lock the door because there were mobs of girls chasing him because he was just so cute and good looking. This is even before he was a movie star. So... You talk about biology as destiny with Tab Hunter, that certainly is proof of that. And then, of course, when you're a good-looking kid like that in Hollywood, people are going to come after you. And um, he had some positive experiences with that and some negative experiences with that. I mean, his agent, uh, the notorious Henry Wilson, spotted him, and he, he's been depicted in Ryan Murphy's Hollywood show. This is a guy who 
had a stable of young men. He was very predatory. I mean, he was sort of the uh, the kind of gay guy that you you don't really want to count him among us, you know, because he was really predatory and kind of proves a lot of the stereotypes of the past. You know, he would get his hooks into these young men. He would he saw something in them that he felt would fit into sort of a mold. There was a type. There was a Henry Wilson type. And he plucked them off the street, plucked them from obscurity, gave them names, uh, got them into the studio system, and um, had a piece of them for the rest of their careers. And some of them fought back against that and bristled against that, like Tab Hunter, which is part of the story we're telling in the in the film. But it's interesting because the the people that you do select for your features, at least, they're all reasonably positive influences on LGBT kind of, you know, uh, culture. With, I mean, the only one that I'm seeing here with a, any kind of degree of kind of a dark side would probably be Alan Carr. I don't know that he's a dark figure. I mean, I really saw him as somebody with obviously some very serious insecurities and addiction, addictions and problems in his own personal life. But that the thing when you think about Alan Carr is somebody who was uh, who'd love show business and looked at entertainment and show business as a way to make people happy. And maybe that's naive on my part to look at him that way, but I really do feel like there was something in him that he was just born to be a showman. I'm, I just I just love that about him. And he was also somebody much like uh, Divine or, um, or some of these other folks. You know, he grew up in a time where he had to hide who he was. He wasn't a sad, lonely gay boy. He was a big, loud, closeted gay boy. You know, he he kind of overcompensated. Even from an early early age, you know, when he was in college, he was the mascot of the sororities and he threw all the parties and everybody loved him and he was super popular. But um, he still couldn't be, he couldn't be openly gay at that time. Uh, even in the 70s when he came to Hollywood, people think of him as this sort of gay icon, but he was not out of the closet. You know, it was this sort of, what attracted to me uh, about Alan Carr in that story is that even though he was so clearly gay and outrageous and the word they would use is uh, flamboyant at the time. And whenever he's interviewed on talk shows, they would call him the flamboyant Alan Carr or the fabulous Alan Carr, which is where our title comes from. He was not openly gay, which I found fascinating. Even though he produced La Cage aux Faux, which is arguably the first Broadway musical with a gay love story in the middle of it, like with the exception of Harvey Firestein, none of the creators of that show who were gay were out of the closet at that point. So I found that interesting. So the, the yes, it's about Alan Carr, this the singular figure, but it's really a, a social history of that period, a gay social history of that period where there was an ability to push the envelope to a certain extent, but she couldn't, you couldn't actually say it. You couldn't actually say the words. What, what was it about Alan Carr that really kind of drove you to doing a documentary about him. Was it the uh, the book, I forget, Party Animals, I think was the book, Yeah, right? I read Party Animals by Bob Hoffer, which is a really entertaining, fun book. And, you know, not there's a lot of figures in, um, in our culture who are really interesting, but wouldn't necessarily make a great film. You know, so when I'm looking at a subject, I look at, well, what, is this a colorful story? Is there archival material that would really support this? Uh, is it a world that I want to live in for five or seven years of my life? Because <laughs> that's how long these things take. Are there people around who can tell the story? Is there, are, is this a complicated figure? I think ultimately a lot of these figures are tragic figures. So I'm, I'm very attracted to that too. With Alan Carr, I got the opportunity to make a section in the movie about the making of Can't Stop the Music, which is probably the main reason I, I wanted to make that movie. So I could it's dive amazing. into that world, you know? That movie is amazing. 
it's, I don't know, for people who haven't seen it, it's, it's an incredible time capsule. It was made after Alan Carr had this gigantic success with Grease, which was at that time the biggest musical moneymaker of all time. And he could do anything he wanted. And what he chose to do was make a musical with the village people who, when he had the idea, they were super popular. But by the time he finished making the movie with them and it came out, there was this big backlash to disco and nobody wanted to hear those records anymore. At least um, not in this country. It was a big hit by the time it got to Australia because they hadn't gotten the message that disco was dead, you know, and people were literally blowing up disco records in, in, uh, um, in the middle of baseball field. So I don't know, I got, I really just was attracted to the world and the, the color and the fun and the insanity of it. And I got to talk to Bruce Valanche about that infamous Oscars that Alan Carr produced uh, that people are still talking about, you know, so... Snow White and, and Rob Lowe coming out sing, and Merv Griffin. You can yeah, find it, it was... on YouTube. It is... You will not be able to unsee this, the the opening to that. I forget which Academy Awards it was. It was, what, 1989 uh, or... It was 90? 89. It was 89. And Alan Carr had been an established uh, figure in Hollywood and loved the Oscars. He it was always his dream to produce the Oscars. And he was given the opportunity to do that by the Academy. And they knew who they were hiring. But what he came up with was this insane opening number that was inspired by Beach Blanket Babylon in San Francisco, which was this super campy review, musical review. So he took that aesthetic and actually worked with the guy who created that show, Steve Silver, to do this opening number, which just kept getting bigger and longer and more insane. And if you look at it, don't watch it on YouTube. Watch it in our documentary because we probably use most of it in that film. Um, and so you should watch the, the documentary Academy, anyway. Yeah. Well, watch that. And then it's on, yeah, it's actually on and YouTube. Then, and then Academy, go to YouTube. Yeah. The Academy, you know, doesn't like to talk about 1989. I don't know how they feel about it now, but you know, there was a huge backlash to that show and Alan Carr was basically, um, railroaded out of town, not literally, but he, he was blamed and shamed for producing that. And, um, it's still confounding to me. I mean, it is, is it in good taste? No. Is it fun? Yes. Is it insane? Yes. But I don't think the world was ready for that at that point. And people felt like he was making fun of Hollywood or disrespecting Hollywood, but he loved Hollywood. And, well, and, and, they, and then a bunch of his friends, Gregory Peck and Paul Newman, I don't remember if Paul Newman was on there. I remember Gregory Peck was on there, uh, wrote a letter to the Academy basically saying, we what is it? We never want this person to produce an Oscars again or something insane. Yeah, it was so bizarre to me because on the night of, they thought it was a big success, right? And then this backlash began, and these establishment figures in Hollywood came together and wrote an open letter to the head of the Academy and said, "This was an embarrassment. This is this should never have happened. Alan Carr should never be have been allowed anywhere near the Academy Awards," and um, and. Alan Carr was kind of stabbed in the back to a certain extent by people he knew and that were friends of his, right? Um, very surprising and very strange, very sad. And that led to his career uh, kind of going down the toilet. But you can also look at this and, and other movies that you've made. I mean, basically, these people who are largely gay, uh, I mean, going back to um, William Castle wasn't gay, but everybody like, you know, Jack Wrangler, Vito Russo, all these people... You know, they're doing their thing and then they run into some kind of homophobia, whether it's overt or veiled. You know, I, I, I think you can't possibly read that Alan Carr letter and not detect a whiff of homophobia the same way 
when Disco imploded just before Can't Stop the Music and he changed the name of the, the movie from Disco Land to Can't Stop the Music, there was a great deal of homophobia in the rejection of Disco at that time as well, right? Oh, there's no doubt about it. I mean, even Jack Wrangler came up against that early in his career, actually before he was even doing porn, he was doing, uh, he was doing theater. And there was um, this older actor who was in the cast and saw Jack Wrangler actually just put his hand on another actor's knee and got him fired from the show. Yeah, this is definitely something, I think you're right about Alan Carr, that there's no doubt that that was not maybe overt homophobia, but it certainly was a reaction to, um, well, who does he think he is? So, yeah, I don't know what to make of that. But I think Alan Carr has had the last laugh because... People are still talking about it. And how many Oscar opening numbers do you remember? I, I remember that's one. A, that's a good one to remember. I wanted to make this William Castle movie. Uh, William Castle was a horror film director from the 1950s. I love this movie, cool. by the way. You know, with your body of work, it's hard to say one of your best, but it's like, this is honestly one of my favorites of yours. This is such a wonderful, loving documentary about a like a, the, the schlockiest of the schlocky horror producers basically uh from the 50s and the 60s right yeah he was a he was a contract director in the 50s and he was making these kind of forgettable you know westerns and historical epics can be movies but he wanted to make it big as a producer like a name above the title producer director like an alfred hitchcock so the way he decided he would do that is to create a gimmick that would go along with the movie. So for his first movie in this series was a movie called Macabre, and he wanted to have total control over it. So he made this movie, which is a pretty good you know, horror thriller, but he had mortgaged his house to pay for the movie and he needed it to be a hit. It had to be a hit. He would lose everything if it wasn't. So he figured, I need a gimmick. And the gimmick he came up with was a life insurance policy against <laughs> death by fright. So if you died during the course of watching the movie, your beneficiaries would collect a million dollars, right? I'm guessing nobody is, actually was able to die of fright during this movie. Nobody died of fright during the movie, but <laughs> he had nurses in attendance. So you'd go in and you have to sign this thing with these real nurses. So it was like, even before you walked into the theater, you thought this was going to be the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life, right? So because of that gimmick, it was a smash hit. And that set him on the road to make more gimmick films, like The Tingler, where it has a... a a little electric seat buzzers under the seats so the monster gets loose in a movie theater in the movie but it's also loose in your theater so at a certain point the buzzers go off under your seats and everyone's supposed to scream for their lives and there's another one called house on haunted hill the gimmick on that one was called emerjo and it had a that was a skeleton on a wire that would come over the audience and dangle for a few seconds and then roll back again and so really cheap gimmicks but i loved his spirit i love his showmanship and it I wanted to make this movie about William Castle. So when I got to LA, that was my mission. And I went to, kind of naively went to Sony, who would own the whole Columbia Pictures Library and said, I want to make this movie. And I happened to meet the guy who was in charge of this new format called DVD. Yes. And they were hiring independent producers to produce content, extras, bonus features for the DVDs. And that kind of got me started into producing DVD extras. They didn't want to make the, the William Castle documentary because that's not what they do. But they were releasing all these these movies on DVD for the first time and they needed content. So I got hired as a, a content producer and that led to 10 years of doing that for the different studios producing content. One of the most pertinent things I think for kind of creatives in our industry and people who are like kind of are listening to this and be like, 
I want to do documentaries or I want to make movies. The one thing that people don't seem to understand uh, when, when I, at least I talk to them is like the sheer amount of work that goes into before you get that first feature. So your first feature really was more or less the, the William Castle movie, Spine Tingler. But before that, you had directed how many of these added value, they were called added values. So any of the documentaries on any of these DVDs, the, the, they were in the industry and kind of when they're made, they're called added value. But you've done like, it had to be over a hundred, right? I mean, it's like enormous amount. There's a lot. Um, <laughs> it was like, it was, I feel like it, 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 it comes down to being obsessed with something. You know, we talked about this a little earlier. If you want to make movies, whether they're docs or features or whatever it is, like you have to be obsessed and you have to be tenacious and you have to just knock on every single freaking door. So I happened to knock on the right door and it, because of my fascination and almost obsession with William Castle and I have to make this movie, I have to make this movie. I didn't know how to make a movie. I didn't know, I didn't have the money to make it. At that time, I would have had to have licensed all these clips. So there was this big behemoth of Sony pictures who owned these movies. Now you would do it in a different way with fair use. But then at that point, I needed their permission to make the movie, but I didn't want to wait for the permission. So through the course of doing these DVD extras, I was assigned a lot of the William Castle titles by Sony and I would start banking interviews and then I would be filming interviews over the course of 10 years, really. So by the time I was ready, I'm like, at a certain point, I, I, I just figured I'll just, I'm just going to start editing this thing together. I'll just start making the thing. And I decided I'm going to, after pitching it everywhere, and I would knock on the door of like AMC or Turner Classic Movies or wherever, you would maybe see these kinds of films, but nobody wanted to make it. So I just decided I'm just going to make it. And uh, eventually cobbled it together into this feature, but it did take about more, about 10 years from the beginning to getting it released. And, and with uh, a day by, job, I mean, basically you're doing documentaries on movies as diverse as like Basic Instinct and Blue Velvet and Silence of the Lambs, as well as, you know, movies that may not have garnered such passion, like the remake of Rollerball or something like that. You know, it's like, but you, you brought your A-game to every single one of these things. If you literally, if you watch any of these things on these, I, I guess they're out of print DVDs now, but they're still out there. Um, these documentaries hold up really well. And, you know, it, it just takes a lot of craft to be able to make like a good 20, 30, 50, 70, 90 minute piece for these DVDs. And, you know, you can tell you, you, you use that learning to make these documentaries because these documentaries right out of the gate, Spine Tingler is an accomplished tight documentary. I mean, this is not a first time filmmaker like debut. And then you go on and you just get better as it goes on. And in fact, Vito, I wanted to talk about because that artistically and kind of filmmaking wise seems to be a turning point in your, in your body of work. I mean, there's, there's a, in that film as compared to the films that came before it and the, and the documentary shorts, there seems to be kind of a maturity and a, a gravitas to that film. And that is evident in the films actually subsequent to it, including Divine, which may or may not, you know, have deserved the gravitas of Vito Russo. But it's like there's there's kind of like a uh, an undercurrent of this is about more than this person. This is about something bigger. This is about LGBT rights. This is about living as an authentic person. Well, the Vito had its roots working for Robin Jeffrey, you know, going to work at uh, Robin Jeffrey's office on the satellite closet for the two and a half, three year period, you know, Vito's spirit was still there. You know, he had just passed away and Robin Jeffrey were entrusted to make 
the cellular closet based on his book. It was literally his deathbed wish. They had been working on it together when Vito was alive and they were trying to figure out how to tell that story. Like maybe would Vito narrate it or would Vito be in the film somehow? And then he passed away and they had to figure out how to do it. And they had a, it was a big responsibility, but they had all of Vito's research materials in the office. So I would get to listen to conversations that Vito had for his journalism or even for Cellular Closet. He'd record all those interviews on tape recorder. So I had my Walkman and I would borrow these tapes and like walk home back and forth from work, listening to conversations that Vito Russo had with Robert Aldrich or Tennessee Williams. It was like an entire dinner conversation with Tennessee Williams. And I would hear Vito asking questions about you know, suddenly last summer or whatever it would be. And then you'd hear Tennessee Williams say, oh, would you pass the sugar substitute? <laughs> Which is amazing. <laughs> That's... And I wish, I don't know where that tape is today. I hope it's somewhere safe. But, you know, I, I was just living and breathing Vito Russo and his personality. And Robin Jeffrey had interviewed him They'd done a pre-interview with him for Common Threads, which is the film they made about the AIDS quilt. And Vito is prominently figured in that film. So they had all these pre-interviews with Vito, which I watched over and over. And that's where Vito tells his whole story. And um, he's in Common Threads. And they had all the outtakes of that interview, too. So by the time I decided I wanted to make Vito, I just I knew that material was there, that Vito could tell his own story and uh, give it a real immediacy and an urgency. You know, that film goes through these different phases and there's the exuberance and the fun of the early gay liberation movement. And um, it wasn't Stonewall so much that motivated Vito to become an activist, but it was what happened right after Stonewall, which was a very little known incident where there was a raid just not that long after Stonewall, it was a raid on another bar by the same officers that raided the Stonewall was a raid on the snake pit and they gathered all these gay men and put them in in the paddy wagon and one of the guys who was arrested was a guy named Diego Vinales and he was an Argentinian national and he didn't want to lose his visa so he he tried to escape and he jumped out of a window of the police station and he landed on a fence and he was impaled on these spikes of this fence they didn't know if he was going to live or die and these spontaneous protests emerged out of this moment they were saying Diego Vinales was pushed out that window. And I had never heard this story before until I heard Vito talk about it in these interviews that Robin Jeffrey did. And I found that so incredible and so powerful. So, you know, the, the film, the documentary, I felt was a way to tell this story of that, that urgency of that moment and the, also the fun that they had, that they could uh, finally have a dance together and not worry about getting raided. And Vito was part of that. But with Vito, again, it's all about movies. Like Vito loved movies. So his way to contribute to the movement was to show movies to this community that was coming out for the first time en masse, right? So he would have these movie nights at the community center, which was an old firehouse. And he would show The Wizard of Oz and Anti-Mame and The Sound of Music and whatever it might be to an audience of LGBT people who for the first time were, you know, they'd always been isolated in a, in a movie theater where they might have been the only gay person and they responded to a movie in a different way. And here we are all together at once, like all reacting to The Wizard of Oz for the first time as a group in the same way. I found that so moving and that I heard from Vito in his interviews. So getting to depict that in the documentary was was so much fun. Uh, and then getting to go on the journey with Vito where he explores all of the, the history of Hollywood and the sort of demeaning ways that we'd been depicted over the years and the anger at that. That's something that he loves so much could betray him. You know, he loved movies and he loved Hollywood so much. 
but they were causing so much pain at the same time. And trying to rectify that by, you know, putting it all out there. And he lived long enough to start to see the changes uh, in the movies, types of movies that were being made, you know. And God, I wish he was here today with us to see what we have now. I mean, he would be amazed. He would be amazed to see... No, no, go ahead. What we have now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you speak very eloquently about Vito and really the theatrical experience of cinema. And right now it's a very odd time because it's the summer of 2020 and uh, we're still in quarantine. And I know I and every filmmaker I know is very much missing the theatrical experience. But the industry has changed a lot. And and a lot of the smaller titles, like documentaries especially – are now finding their way to premiere and kind of be consumed mostly on streaming. Can you speak a little bit about how the industry has changed and how it's changed the way that you approach making these documentaries? Well, you know, for me, the big payoff in making a film is to show it to an audience. You know, that is the joy of this. That is what I'm looking forward to when I'm making a movie and it's really hard and it takes a long time and you don't have any money and you're just struggling through it. We've all been there. You just visualize. I, for me, what gets me through is visualizing being in the Castro Theater, or I should say, being at the DGA, since this is an Outfest podcast, you know, being in the DGA, <laughs> surrounded by people and unspooling this thing that you've worked so hard on that you're, you, the whole reason you made it is to share it with the community. And I, I don't even watch the movie. I watch the faces of the people watching the movie. That is the joy for me, you know? You know, but then I know that the movie ultimately is going to be streaming somewhere. You know, it would be DVD and then maybe cable, but now it's streaming, right? So... I know that ultimately that's where these films are going to live, but I I want us to hold on to this theatrical experience, if, even if it's only that one time. And with my films, I get to experience it one time in different cities around the world. And that is the, the joy for me. So Outfest, I've had some of the most incredible experiences in my life at Outfest. I was so grateful that Outfest chose Vito as the opening night film for their 30th anniversary that is one of the best nights of my entire life. That was, it was so magical. Incredible. That night was so magical. It really it was, was amazing. And to have and John Waters was given the award, so I, that was obviously a thrill for me because John Waters is probably the one creative person that I look up to the most and has inspired me the most. I'm not alone in this, obviously. And then to have Vito on spool at the Orpheum on the very stage where Judy Garland used to perform, it was just an amazing experience for me. And the film, it's it's unusual for Outfest to program a documentary opening night. They've done it before and since. Not very often, And Vito no. ends on a, a very tragic and sad note. You know, so it's not like you're leaving the theater on a high. You're leaving the theater realizing how much we've lost and a whole generation that we've lost, right? But hopefully his activism and his passion will carry through in your own life, you know? You can walk through the world in a way with your head held up high, the way Vito did. And... When we were making the movie, we'd always joke, what would Vito do? And I still think about that, you know, when I'm faced with a problem or, you know, struggling through a project or whatever it might be. You just think about Vito working on the cellulite closet for 10 years, not being paid to do this. It's not like he was like someone hired him to do this. He was working as a waiter or he was working at the bathhouse, literally at the bathhouse and writing this book and traveling to Washington, D.C., the Library of Congress to look at some obscure silent movie, you know. That's the tenacity that you need, whatever, whatever creative endeavor you're doing, whether you're making a movie or writing a book or whatever it is, you can't let go of that. The reward is the work, right? It's not like there's a big pot of gold at the end of this, <laughs> this process making a movie. And you know this, you know, yes. you're making the movie for the audience. So to get back to your question, you know, I, 
I'm very worried about the state of things. I mean, I, I'd like this podcast to be evergreen, so I don't want to like tie it to this moment in time, but we are living through this really uncertain moment. You know, we're all as individuals and, and kind of as independent artists trying to figure out, okay, how do we handle this kind of worldwide trauma? You know, we can talk about the things we miss, like, you know, the theatrical experience or going to the movies or stuff like that. But um, it's important to kind of look to our heroes for wisdom and guidance. And if anyone was a hero to independent filmmakers, especially LGBT independent filmmakers, Vito Russo has got to be right up there. Vito Russo, he lived through another plague. I should say he didn't live through that plague. That plague killed him, you know, but he knew that he was going to be taken by this plague. He knew that his time was short and he wanted to get as much done as he possibly could in the time that he had. He needed to fight for his own life. He needed to fight for his community. He needed to fight for the future. You know, we're living in the world now that in a way he and the men and women and non-binary people of his age create, you know, envisioned for us. You know, we're, we're living that. And I'm just so grateful to him. You know, this is an incredibly challenging time. I, I don't know what's going to happen and nobody has any answers. You know, we, we just, I have to keep thinking we're going to get through this. The world is going to look different on the other side of this and exhibition is going to look different. Mm-hmm. I want to get back in that theater and experience the collective emotion. You know, I want to experience that again. I think uh, you speak for everybody I know, honestly. want to know more about Outfest? Of course you do. You're listening to this podcast. Outfest is the only LGBTQIA arts, media, and entertainment nonprofit organization in the world whose programs empower artists, communities, and filmmakers alike to transform the world through their stories while also supporting the entire life cycle of their career from outset to legacy. And what that means is it is one of the largest LGBT film festivals in the world and one of the largest film festivals in North America. Also, Outfest has a tremendous number of programs for young filmmakers as well as archivists preserving gay stories for all time. It is a truly outstanding organization. And especially right now, we would love your help. Please go to outfest.org and learn how you can become a member of this fantastic organization. I want to talk about what you're working on because every, like, I, I know of these projects and I don't know which ones you want to discuss and which ones you don't want to discuss, but I have to say all... Uh, three, I know of the three you're working on, um, I desperately, as you know, desperately want to see all three of these movies. You could not have hit my sweet spot with each one of these movies anymore. Why don't you just talk about whichever the first one is you want to talk about because I just love all three of these movies. Well, this goddamn virus has put a crimp in everything, so I don't know when these movies are going to get done. But um, but they, know, will be. On, they will be. They will be done. Yes. I mean, they all get done. They're, they'll all get done. I mean, the beauty of documentary is like I can – I just keep moving them forward in the best way that I can. I know a lot of filmmakers are doing that. We're having to figure out a way to work differently from our homes. Yeah, and, I'm in that department. You know, that's the way it is right now. Um, but the, the films – a couple of the movies I'm making, I, I part of what motivates me is like at the end of this, people are going to want to experience some collective joy, right? Yeah. So. I'm working on a doc about the making of Showgirls, which is a oh. beloved movie in our community. Oh, so and amazing. The making of that movie 
much like the LGBT community who was kicked around and knocked down and not taken seriously and demeaned, you know, I love things in the culture that were not appreciated in their day and then come back with a roar. So, you know, the movie Showgirls is, is one of those things. You know, at the time it was made, it was totally misunderstood and, and kicked to the curb. And the lead actress in that movie was completely humiliated for the wrong reasons. And now the movie is 25 years old and it's beloved in our community. And there are drag shows devoted to it and live reenactments of this. So we've been working on this movie for the last few years. I don't know when we're, we'll, we'll finish it. We were hoping to get it done in time for the 25th, which is literally right now. Don't think that's going to happen, but hey, I could be proven wrong. Um, <laughs> but I, I just can't wait to put that out to the world because I think people are going to want to, whether it's in a movie theater, whether it's at a festival, whether it's on Zoom, or maybe, I don't know, Netflix Watch, I don't know what it's going to be, but um, I want to put this out into the world. I want to bring some joy into the world. That's what motivates me too. The same way it motivated like Alan Carr, you know, he made Grease at a time, you know, the, the, the gasoline shortages and the hostage crisis and all these, you know, recession and it was a shitty time, the late 70s, mid to late 70s. And he wanted to very consciously, he wanted to put Greece out into the world to like make people happy and take their minds off things. And, you know, I'm not the kind of filmmaker. I mean, I can't wait to see the movies about the crisis that we're going through now. I watch those movies. I love those movies. I have so much respect for people who make those movies. That's not me. You know, I really want to make things that are more diverting, you know, and that on the surface, there's color and fun, but underneath there's something more important. But, you know, that's not why you don't go to the movies to learn a social history. You go to the movies to be entertained. Hopefully that's why I do. So I want to make these movies that are entertaining and satisfying and bring some joy. And I'm just going to hopefully be able to keep doing that. I think so many of us have projects that that's the thing that's keeping us sane right now. Like, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have a, a mission every day is to like, push these projects forward in whatever way that's possible right you know, now. I love Showgirls. I cannot wait. <laughs> I cannot wait to see your documentary on Gloria Swanson and her attempts to make Sunset Boulevard the musical well before Andrew Lloyd Webber actually made Sunset Boulevard the musical. Yes, this is called Boulevard, a Hollywood story. And this is a very strange tale, true story um, about these two young men, Dixon Hughes and Richard Stapley, who no one's ever heard of. But they were a young gay couple in the 1950s who were lovers and also songwriting partners. And they found their way to Gloria Swanson. And Gloria Swanson had the idea to do a musical version of Sunset Boulevard, which was like kind of unheard of. Like people were not making musicals out of movies at that time, especially something so dark. And the three of them embarked on doing this. And they actually did write the whole musical and recorded demos of all the songs, which I have. And they're all sitting in Gloria Swanson's archive. So this is a very obscure story, but I felt it had all the elements of a great Hollywood melodrama. And the two men are no longer with us, but I was able to connect with people who were close to them. And I have them telling their own stories. I have incredible archival. So I've been putting that together. And that's, for me, I've never really done a musical as a documentary, but this is kind of a musical. There's so many, there's so many moments where you get to hear the, the songs that they wrote. I'm really excited about it. So the, the reason I thought this would make a great movie is that the relationship between the three of them started to resemble more and more the plot of Sunset Boulevard. When Gloria fell for one of the young men, Richard Stapley, who was a super handsome, former leading man, British um, actor, and the documentary, when I 
first started working on it, I thought it was going to be about more about Gloria and the musical, but it's turned into be more about Richard Stapley and how he, as he started getting older, he started to resemble more and more the Norma Desmond character. He kind of became a Norma Desmond type. So, you know, these are guys, Richard and Dixon are not guys that anyone's ever heard of, but I think it's a really great opportunity to talk about um, the 1950s and the closet. And he was an actor and he continued to be an actor after this incident with Gloria. But he was always struggling with like how to present himself to the world. He was very closeted. He was married, super macho type of guy, but very ambivalent, right? So well, in, a, in a way, it sounds like you're examining artifice, uh, the same way Sunset Boulevard examined artifice and how it replicated itself in real life with these people. Absolutely. And certainly with your next film, with the, with the other project, the last project, which is very much about how art imitates life, imitates art, it's called Mineshaft, but it's about the making of the infamous, and, and I will defend this movie, uh, William Friedkin 1980 release Cruising, which was... I think the first film the LGBT community actually came together to protest while it was in production, right? It was um, being filmed on the streets of New York, Greenwich Village, in the summer of 79. And this was a movie that finally Hollywood was going to make a movie set in the gay world. But what is the subject matter? It's about a psycho killer killing gay men. And that's not the image necessarily that a lot of gay people uh, wanted to see. However, what what attracted me to making this documentary, and again, you don't really know what movie you're making until you're in it. You know, like with the Swanson Project, I didn't know I was really making a movie about Richard Stapley. It's it's much less to do with Gloria than it has to do with these men. When I started doing the research for doing a doc about the making of Cruising, it turns out that there was a, a real murder that inspired the making of the film. There was a, a man named Addison Verrill who was a gay man living in New York. He was a film critic and a writer for Variety. And he picked up a guy at the Mineshaft, which is this notorious uh, leather bar. Uh, and uh, the, the man that he picked up uh, murdered him uh, in the night. And what's even weirder about this whole story is the murderer, his name was Paul Bateson. And it turns out that Paul Bateson was in The Exorcist as uh, an extra in a scene filmed at NYU Medical Center where he worked. There was a scene where Linda Blair was being given this weird medical test to see if she was, you know, what was going on with her brain, although she was possessed by a demon. Anyway, spoiler Paul alert. Bateson, spoiler alert, I think we missed, you cut all that out. <laughs> it turns out that Paul Bateson, who was arrested for the murder of Addison Verrill, had been in The Exorcist, directed by William Friedkin. And when William Friedkin saw this in the newspaper... He recognized Paul Bateson, and he had been developing this movie called Cruising, which was going to be set in the gay world, and that elements from that murder made their way into Cruising. So the in the course of making the documentary, I found my way into this other story, which is really the focus of the film now, and have been doing interviews. I'm still in production. Um, I've been doing interviews with uh, people who were close with Addison Verrill. And it took quite some time to even find these people, you know. So the reason these films take so long is sometimes you don't even go into a completely new direction that you were never even expecting. So I'm always fascinated and surprised by that. And And you do a lot uh, of this research. I mean, you have people that sometimes you rely on, but I mean, people shouldn't, anyone listening to this shouldn't think that you have a a team of, you know, researchers on on call or something. You're doing this. Well, I do have uh, people that help me out when I, 
I was given a name by Addison Verrill's sister. The sister said, oh, there's this guy. I think he was my brother's roommate in the 70s. You should try to find him, right? Just in passing. So I, I have this fantastic researcher named Tennille, and she, she knows how to find people. You know, she's an expert in genealogy, and she'll, she'll just figure it all out. So I gave her the name, and she ended up tracking this guy down. And it turns out that, no, he wasn't just Addison's roommate. He was his lover of five years, the love of oh, his life. Wow! I didn't even know this man existed. I'm already like four or five years into making the movie and this new discovery happened. So um, he and I have become very friendly and he's now participating in the film. But it, it took time to get people to trust me and to understand what I was doing. Addison's sister, it took quite some time for her to understand what I was what I was trying to do here, I'm not trying to exploit her brother or exploit this murder. I'm trying to tell a story about the sort of the darker side of gay liberation at that moment. So, yeah, those, so that's that's what's cooking now. Um, and that's why I'm on the planet, I think. I think we probably will all feel this way, you know. Um, I don't do the, the DVD extra so much because that market isn't really there. Which is kind of a shame. I do miss them. I mean, I loved working on those things. Um, it was really kind of like working for the studio system. You know, I had to make... Um, I was working for the marketing department of these different studios, right? So they would say, well, we're putting out Blue Velvet on DVD, so here's X amount of budget and go and make a, a movie or a documentary. So they weren't really in the documentary business. They were just in the marketing business. They wanted to have bullet points on the back of the DVD packaging so people would buy it. So they would get rid of their VHSs and then buy this new format, right? But talk about the world's best training ground for becoming a documentary feature filmmaker. I mean, you got you, you got so much experience. Doing the DVD extras, I, I couldn't believe it. You know, I was getting to meet all these filmmakers and make documentaries about their work, doing audio commentary, sitting in an audio commentary session with whoever it might be, Sidney Lamette, talking about Failsafe, or, you know, or Larry Cohen, or oh. Roger Corman, or Vin Vendors even, and then doing documentaries. Some of them were short, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes. Some of them were feature length, you know. The Silence of the Lambs documentary was over an hour and we got to make a, a doc about uh, when the Rent movie came out, we decided we were able to do a, a documentary about Jonathan Larson and the creation of his musical and it was like a two and a half hour kind of epic, right? I never would have gotten the chance to do these things. And a lot of times I was able to sneak in some queer uh, subject matter. So there might be... Well, for Rent, you didn't need to sneak it in. It's already well, there. Well, for Rent... Yeah, for Rent, we got to talk about some of the real people who were in Jonathan Larson's world who had HIV and AIDS and died that inspired the musical, right? And, you know, we did a documentary about the making of Philadelphia. It's called People Like Us. And got to highlight some of the people who inspired that story. Uh, and some of the actors who were HIV-positive actors in the film and got to kind of divert and talk about them. And... My business partner at the time, Laura Nix, she directed a feature-length documentary about the making of Hedvig. And that was a doc that ended up playing festivals as well. So doing these, uh, sometimes they resembled documentaries, but really what they were were marketing pieces. And we did a lot of things that were, you know, documentaries. I would That would be a stretch to call them documentaries. But some of them were, you know. And we had so much leeway and freedom to do it. It was really was kind of like the Wild West. I was going to ask you if you ever got notes to, like kind of whitewash some aspects of the production or, or any of these things? The notes we would get from the studios were never creative. They were all legal. So they were very paranoid, they, and rightfully so. They, the legal departments were all over this stuff. So right. we would have to make changes based on legal things. But generally, we could just have fun and interview people about this these 
great experiences they had in their lives and making docs about the Princess Bride or, or even crappy movies like New Line let us make a documentary about the making of Leatherface Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 3, Ooh. which is considered kind of a, a terrible failure. <laughs> but we acknowledge that the studio meddled in it and cut it up and and they let us make this documentary. And the, the director of that movie was, was there talking about this horrible experience he had with the studio who's paying for the documentary to be made about <laughs> what a horrible studio they were. I don't know. It was, it was wild. But then the world changed. You know, streaming came in and the Blu-ray format was introduced and it didn't really take off the way that they were hoping to. It never, and then once people were able to stream, all that ancillary material didn't get port, ported over to Netflix. Um, there's still, the, those kinds of things are still made, but I really wanted my documentary to be the the prime attraction, not the extra that's tagging along right. with something else, right? So even though I had made hundreds of these things, it wasn't until the first film where I was like considered a, a director. Like I, I had a meeting with a studio executive once about producing extras, and he was complaining about producers thinking they're filmmakers and making these documentaries. And it's fine. I mean, we weren't there to be filmmakers. We were there to be just provide content, right? So it was an interesting way. I learned so much about running a business. You know, it was running a production company with employees and having to have multiple projects going at one time and having delivery dates. And I, I so value that experience. I didn't get into it to run a company. I got into it to make documentaries, to make DVD extras or whatever you want to call them. But in the course of that, I learned how to run a business and it was extremely challenging, um, and I'm glad I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> glad it's just I could just get to focus on you know my my projects, which is I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be able to do that. Well, the story of cinema really, just because it's such an expensive medium, is the kind of the push-pull between art and commerce. Like, you know, if you don't have your business side kind of locked down, you're not going to be able to get the financing to do anything, any art or anything. Which kind of leads me into the next question, and, and I think one of our final questions, which is a very annoying question, uh, I admit. How do you pay for this shit? Yeah, well, no, <laughs> it's not even that. It was, it's just like, what do you see as the future of the documentary format? Right now, it's... It's, you know, you, depending on what you read and who you talk to, it's either the hottest market for documentaries in history or the most impossible time to make anything in history. And maybe they're both true, but what, you know, you would know more than I think almost anybody, like kind of where the truth lies. Well, the great thing about this moment is anybody can pick up their phone and make a movie. And the crappy thing about this moment is that anybody can pick up their phone and make a movie, right? So there's this huge <laughs> glut and it's like you get to make the movie, but how are you going to get people to see the movie and how are you going to monetize this? But it's That's about quality, right? I mean, isn't this about quality and how quality would be the great divide now? Um, I would like to think so. I don't know. I don't know that it's a meritocracy. I think a lot of um, – there's just so much content and there are so few players now. Your, your eyeballs are going to Netflix, let's say, and they don't buy a lot of independent documentaries. There's – thousands being made and there's only a certain amount they'll actually buy and then they'll actually develop in-house a certain amount of them as well to make it like a Netflix original but there's so much competition there's so many movies and there's so much noise I'm overwhelmed scrolling through any of these streaming platforms there's just so many movies like I don't even I'll, sc I'll scroll for an hour and then end up not watching anything because it's just oh, overwhelming me too. So how do you get your movie to stand out right so I think part of our job as filmmakers it's not just making the movie it's but 
being showmen and being salesmen and getting out there in some way to get people to pay attention. You know, just because you can put the movie out yourself doesn't mean that eyeballs are going to be drawn to it because there's no marketing dollars behind a lot of these films. So festivals are the way to get the word out. That's why festivals are so valuable. Outfest is so valuable for filmmakers because you premiere it at a festival, you're going to get press to talk about your movie. You're going to get reviewers to come and review the movie. You need those reviews and variety and Hollywood Reporter. Absolutely. So we have a system now that is very precarious, but the festivals are such an important way. It's almost like a road show. Or in the old days, the director would go out on the road with a movie, right? It would open in New York, then it would open in L.A., then it would San Francisco, Boise, Idaho, wherever. Festivals are sort of like that. And it gets people talking. Um, on, on a Netflix, and I gorge on Netflix, and I love the opportunity to see all these movies I never would have seen. But, like, how do you even know they exist? There's no marketing, really, unless it's, like, a, one of the big ones that they put out, right? This is not going to be forever. This moment is not forever. Thank God. We will... We will get through this in some way or another. It's going to be very painful and it may take some time. Yeah. Um, but this, we're going to look back on this moment. I hope that we can come out of it um, uh, stronger. I don't know. Period. <laughs> we come out of it. Well, there's going to be, I mean, there's going to be a mourning period and there's going to be a, an assessment period. I think a healing period for, I think, everybody to, because to, this is a trauma at the end of the day. This is, this is a, a trauma that we're going to have to kind of adapt to. Um, and I think entertainment is like movies and, and the, like the stuff that you're making is, is part of that healing. I hope so. It's just very sad to think, well, there's no pride this year. You know, San Francisco, it was going to be the 50th anniversary of their first March and it's not going to happen. The fact that there's no, the only box office that's being reported is drive-ins. It's just bizarre to me. You know, it's um, I actually was texting not to name drop, but, with John Waters because I wanted to see how he was doing. And he was saying like, is this the end of show business? And I didn't know what to say to that. You know, he, is it? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think I mean, so. We've been, we've had, but we got to protect had, John Waters. We got to make sure that he's okay at the end of this because you know, <laughs> there's only so much we can take. There's a lot of people we need to protect. John Waters is one of them. Absolutely. <laughs> John Waters and Ruth Bader Ginsburg are basically at the top as far as I'm concerned. Um, my last question for you is, I'm going to couch this with, you cannot give one particular answer. The question I have is, what advice would you give to filmmakers? And the advice you can't give is just make your movie. Because that's the advice that all filmmakers give. Because it's the easiest thing to say. Because it's like, you know, whatever. But aside from just make your movie, what advice would you give to filmmakers? Well, there's sort of a version of that, which you just asked me not to say, which was, <laughs> don't ask for permission to make your movie. Right. You, you, that's good. That's a good, that's a good, you know, uh, look at it though. I mean, the, the gatekeepers that used to be there, there aren't really there anymore. Now you can go and make your movie, whether it be a documentary feature film, whatever it might be. It doesn't mean that people are going to see it. It doesn't mean that people are going to pay to see it. Right. You have to get, just remove the idea that there's a pot of gold at the end of this. Like you have to do it for yourself. And if it appeals to you, then it's going to appeal to someone else. If your audience is an audience of 1,000 people, that's kind of all you need right now, right? You can get 1,000 people to rent your movie or to pay to see it. Maybe you'll get to make another movie after that and grow your audience, you know? I think it's now it's um, a great time to figure out what your niche is. You have to figure out where you belong in the ecosystem, right? I feel like I know who my audience is. 
Um, I'm very grateful to have that audience. And it's a lot of it is because of film festivals that I've been able to do this. And um, I feel like if you're a filmmaker, you, you can't make your movie. The Marvel universe is for everybody. The Marvel universe is for every single person on the planet because it is so right. broad and it has such a, a, an appeal. Like every age can go see it and they have a huge marketing budget. Four quadrant. As an independent filmmaker, and I think that's what you're asking about, like who is your audience? It's not that audience because they can get that. That's like going to McDonald's, you know? It's like, what is your audience? How is your audience not being served and how can you serve them? Right. You're not going to knock on the door of a studio anymore or even to knock on the door of Netflix because they will not answer that. They will not open that door for you. You have to, you have to literally do it yourself. And that's an ethos I think goes way back to the beginning of making movies or even people like John Waters who just figured out a way to do it and found their audience. He found his audience of freaks they embraced him and he's had a career of 50 years in show business. And I think that's the way to do it. And to not be afraid of selling yourself and promoting yourself. I mean, what it, that looks different now than it did in John Waters' day when they were like putting signs on lampposts. And running around with like 16 that. millimeter prints to every city. And running around with 16 millimeter prints. It's, it looks different now. Um, I think Kickstarter, love it or hate it, it's, it's a great way to connect with an audience directly. Something like Goddess, the Showgirls documentary, Part of the reason I felt like I could make that movie is because I knew there was an audience for it. There was a, a large, hopefully, audience of people who love showgirls and want to go deeper. And if we can tap into that audience, which we did with our Kickstarter successfully, um, and we're still maintaining that relationship with all those fans as we're making the movie, at the end of the day, we'll have a movie that would really make those people really happy. It's, it's not for everybody. So I think that's really the moment we're in now is that just find your audience. That's the advice I would give. But I think you said also said something very valuable that I think has been is is toxic to a lot of kind of up and coming creatives. And these are the people who kind of, you know, they want to make stuff and they look at how it's going to be received. They look at positive like reviews or where it's going to get me or how it's going to like you know whatever. And it cannot. And I and I've said this to so many filmmakers. And I, I, I you you said it yourself. It cannot be about that. It has to be about the journey. It has to be about the making of the thing. It has to be about the present. And when you're making a movie, that's so hard because making a movie is not always fun. In fact, I would say quite often <laughs> it's rather punishing. Um, but it has to be about that. So how do you kind of navigate that? That the 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 day to day of just making this thing and making that be the valuable thing. Um, well, <laughs> cut that out, cut that out. Um, I, I have to feel like this is my mission. You know, I have a mission statement. I don't, I think we all have a mission statement, whether or not we actually put it into words. I understand that this is what I'm supposed to be doing, that I wake up in the morning and I can't wait to get to work. Like, I can't wait. After I talk to you, I'm going to jump on my system and I'm going to work on, Boulevard. I'm going to do that today. That's my day. I know what my day is going to look like. And I'm going to get a little bit further in getting to the finish line. It may take another month. It may take another year. I don't know. I just, I just, but I just know in my heart that it's, it's going to be um, satisfying for me. And if it's satisfying for me, if I'm able to will this into existence, I know it's going to hopefully be satisfying for an audience. So I'm always thinking about the audience. How is this going to please them? I don't want to do something that is going to alienate the audience. I want to do something that's going to please the audience and make them feel and make them laugh and make them cry. I mean, and really, it's that's as simple as it is for me. I just want to elicit a response, uh, an emotional response 
usually for me, it's, it's laughter. And then also pathos, you know, like at the end of the day, you're laughing and you don't realize it, but you've fallen in love with this person that you're watching the movie about. And then you cry when they're gone. You know, I mean, that's, that's really all it is for me. Um, I don't know if that's simplistic, but I just want to feel, I want the audience to feel, to feel something. That's it. Well, Jeffrey, this has been amazing. You are an inspiration to me personally, and I'm sure a great many other filmmakers. Thank you so much for talking to us. I really appreciate it. I love that you're doing this. I'm so, I'm so happy that Outfest is doing a podcast. There's so many filmmakers and people in our stratosphere that I would love to uh, hear you talk to, and I'll be sending you a list after. You the, need uh, to send me a list because we're up. We're 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 making. Believe me, the lists are flying around over here. So I. I cannot wait to talk to some of these people. In fact, I cannot believe I'm going to talk to some of these people. So um, really looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Everybody, this has been Jeffrey Schwartz. Um, look up his movies right now. I know that I'm Divine just went back to Netflix. I believe Alan Carr is on Amazon Prime. Uh, is Tab Hunter still on Amazon Prime? I don't know where everybody is. Uh, Tab, I think it is. Uh, Vito is on Amazon Prime now. They're all out there in some way or another. Um, Spine Tingler is on Vimeo and uh, on DVD on Amazon, but they're all out there. That's okay. It's Googleable. And I cannot wait to see these upcoming movies about showgirls, uh, Gloria Swanson and the making of cruising and the murder that inspired it. Um, thank you so much for talking to us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And this has been the outcast presented by outfest for more, go to outfest.org slash the outcast. The Outcast is executive produced by Ismail Al-Sharif and Alan Koningsberg. Special thanks to Damian Navarro and the entire Outfest team. Music by West One Music Group. For more information about Outfest, the film festival, the programs, and all the ways that you can help support LGBT voices, go to outfest.org. The Outcast is a production of Milton Ventures Media and Triple Fire Productions. I'm David Kittredge. Thank you so much for listening and catch you next time.